0: Joshua 9, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan, in the hill country and in the lowland, all along the coasts of the Great Sea towards Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites heard of this. They heard of all that God had done in and around Generation Next, and they heard about the covenant that God and his people had renewed. Well, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions and took worn out sacks for their donkeys, wineskins, worn out and torn and mended, and with worn-out patched sandals on their feet and worn-out clothes. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly, you know, like breads and whatnot. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, We have come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us. How then can we make a covenant with you if you live nearby? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. Joshua said to them, "Uh, well, who are you? Where do you come from? They said, well, we are from a very distant country. Your servants have come from because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. And all he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan. In other words, not from around here. To, To Sihon, the king of Heshbon. To Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. And so our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey and go to meet them. And say to them, we are your servants. Come now, make a covenant of peace with us. Here is our bread. Now it was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we set out to come to you. But look, behold, it is dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them. Behold, they have now burst. These garments, these sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. At the end of three days, after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that their neighbors, that they were actually neighbors, and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chepherah, Biroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the people of Israel did not attack them because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against the leaders. But all the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, so now we may not touch them. We may not get rid of them. This is what we will do to them. Let them live, lest God's wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to the people, let them live. And so they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation, just as the leaders had said of them. Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and he said to them, why did you deceive us, saying, we are very far from you, when in fact you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And they answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants for a certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of that land. So we fear greatly for our lives because of you. And so we did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right, in your sight due to us. And so he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel, and they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water of the congregation for the altar of the Lord to this day in the place that he should choose. This is God's word. Has anyone here ever bought anything they saw advertised from a TV infomercial? Raise your hand, just a moment of honesty, it's okay, we're all friends here, we'll, know, we'll judge each other, okay, that's a healthy amount of people. Sometime this summer, we, we got some time back, in, uh, back for holiday in the States, and we spent about 10 days with uh, Katie's family, uh, who I'm blessed to, to know quite well, actually, and, and good friends and very close with them. And Now Katie has a, a cornucopia of siblings, but specifically she has uh, three teenage sisters, One of whom we're grateful for relocated for the week uh, that we could stay in their bedroom. And I gotta say, her sisters are great. Her teenage sisters, they're they're great to me. Uh, But my big fear when you stay as a guest in the bedroom of a teenager is you know, you're gonna open a drawer thinking it's towels and then like find something really embarrassing. And specifically uh, in the bathroom, right? The bathroom for any teenager is like the unholy grail of embarrassment. Uh, and sure enough, uh, everywhere, didn't you have to look, in the shower and elsewhere, I found these, uh, these proactive products, all right, uh, the proactive skin products that treat ongoing issues with acne. All right, so I pick up the bottle, and I'm looking, just because I'm, <laughs> I'm nosy, and, and, and sure enough, her sister comes in to kind of grab one last thing from her room, and I'm, I'm looking at these things, and I don't know what to say other than, so... You no, know, what's the deal? And at this point, I'm just hoping I haven't mortified her into a life of nunnery. <laughs> but thankfully, I, she actually responded quite well. She responded by saying, "This stuff really works." And she goes on. She goes on to give a glowing praise of this skin acne care product and how much it's helped her. The fact that it was so glowing, this testimony, and that it came from a sort of typical brooding. Twilight series generation teenager compelled me to go online and look. Okay, what it, I want to see more about this stuff. What is it? Went online and watched their various infomercials. I wanted to see, you know, what I missed out on a couple decades earlier when I was a teenager and I had landmines on my face, you know. So, watched these infomercials and I observed Proactive's three steps to enter the clear zone. Up close, I was drawn in. And I listened to singer and Hollywood's favorite tween sensation, Justin Bieber, share his heartfelt story of acne rags to riches, right? Look, I mean, look at this before and after picture. I mean, that's unbelievable. So I was convinced that I nearly bought some just in case I reverted back to puberty, right? And I'm cheap, not to mention in my mid-30s, so unlikely to happen, but... Three different and impressive presentations showing, explaining how effective this product is despite all the acne fails that I've experienced before. Clearacel, Neutrogena, you failed me. I'm going to believe this though. And now, while this might truly work, I don't know, I've not used this stuff, uh, it goes to show that when we hear or see something enough times, and when the, when the presentation is convincing, As human beings, we will begin to believe it's true. Make it a good presentation and give it to us enough times and we'll begin to believe it's true. Politicians, marketers, advertisers, they know this and they have taken advantage of it. So also, by the way, did the leaders of Gibeon, all the way back to 1400 BC. And the Gibeonites make an impressive showing, don't they? I mean, they look like they've made a transcontinental trip, right? The the old bread. Old wineskins, right? Everything's worn out, disheveled. Even though they lived about six miles northwest of Jerusalem. And they made it sure that God's people hear their story more than once, right? They talk about this distant country. Let's make a covenant, verse 7. We'll be your servants, implying covenant language, again, verse 8, and then again in verse 9. Did we say distant? We mean very distant. I mean, far, far away. We've heard of this Yahweh guy. We've heard what he's done in faraway lands beyond the Jordan. Very shrewd of them, right? Do you notice? They're nearby. They would have heard of the conquering that went on, in Jericho and Ai, very close to them. But they talk about, we've heard about stuff that's going on way past the borders, because that's where we're from. We can really sympathize then with God's people, can't we? Read this story. And you're sort of drawn into understanding how God's people were deceived, and I think we're meant to. Well, let's take a look, by the way, at the similarities between Rahab in chapter two, the hitchhiker whom God's people picked up becomes a hero of faith, included in God's family and an ancestor of Jesus. The similarities between her and the Gibeonites. Story of Rahab's a great story. A story we look back to and say, let's, let's emulate this, but not so much here. But look at the similarities. Both claim to have heard of the great deeds which Yahweh had done, right? Foreign people who claim oh, we've heard about this God. Both demonstrate the hearing about this God is sufficient for them to believe in him. Both stood up against the powers that be the worldviews of their time, entire ways of life to side with this foreign God, Yahweh. And then both become part of the people of God. One more. God's people commit themselves to both by way of covenant. See the similarities here? And I, and I point out these similarities to say, what's the difference I mean, don't you kind of sympathize with God's people here in chapter 9? Man, they're just reaching out. They're trying to help people. So why is Rahab a lesson on godly commitment while the Gibeonites are are, are a lesson of of a good-looking but ultimately woeful commitment? Well, as we address this question, we're going to also attempt to figure out this morning for ourselves how to make godly Versus good-looking commitments in life. All right, also, how to respond to poor promises and unprayed commitments. Once you've made the commitment, how do you respond to it if it's a poor one? And thirdly, how can God redeem poor promises and unprayed commitments? Those are our three kind of things for this morning. So if you tend to commit to wrong things, if you're up here this morning and, and you feel like, man, I just tend to make bad commitments, Or I tend to overcommit. Or I have a fear of commitment. I have prayed especially for you this morning and present specifically to you Joshua chapter 9 entitled The Commitments. So first, how to make godly versus good-looking commitments. And we're going to spend by far most of our time here. By far most of our time. How to make godly versus good-looking commitments. And I want to make an important tangent here if you'll let me. Joshua 9 does not address the purely selfish commitment, all right? This is not where it chooses to draw the line, uh, even though that's where we find ourselves a lot of times, and I love this about God's Word. I love that at times God's Word, it meets us exactly where we are, warts and all, struggles and all, and other times it leads out in front of us, challenging us to move ahead. It doesn't come and coddle us and say, oh, I know where you're at, here's God's grace here. Sometimes it gets out ahead of us and says, come on, stop eating baby food and right now start eating according to your age. I think this is one of these moments. God's word here doesn't draw the line at, well, maybe you make commitments that are partly selfish. It's not what's going on here with God's people. The first place Joshua 9 draws the line is making commitments according to both God's word and his spirit. So principle one in how to make godly commitments is commit according to both the Word and the Spirit. In verse 7, generation next asks the right question in response to a request for a commitment. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites. The Hivites, by the way, are a larger group of which the Gibeonites were kind of a subset. So you have the Hivites and you have the Gibeonites who are part of that. They say, perhaps you live among us and if so, then how can we make a covenant with you? Does that make sense? So maybe you live near us. how then can we make a, a deal with you? You may recall what we read last week at the end of chapter eight. During generation next, first worship service in the new land, they both write a copy of God's word, His law, and they read all of it to one another. So they've just read God's word together. They've written it down in that law that they read, is Deuteronomy 7 which begins this way, Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away the many nations before you, the Hittites, the Hivites, nations more numerous and mightier than yourselves, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote themselves to destruction. You shall not make a covenant with them and you cannot show mercy to them. That's his commandment. It's repeated at least two other times, at least that I could find, and what they would have been reading to each other just one chapter earlier in Joshua 8. So they are actually, by asking this question, wait a minute, maybe you live near us, and if so, we can't make a deal with you. They are actually demonstrating fidelity to God's Word. They're interpreting any potential commitment or decision through God's Word. They're asking the right question. But also, while they check off that box... Okay, we're trying to do what God's word says. They don't pause to do something equally as important, and that is ask God. So the key verse here in all of Joshua 9 is verse 14. So the men took some of their provisions, but they did not ask counsel from the Lord. I think what God may want to impress upon us this morning is that we need to be people who are both of of the word and of the spirit of his leading, of going to him in prayer. And I love that, by the way, about the New Testament, specifically the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. I'm going to continue to refer to this passage, Acts 20, as a parallel to Joshua 9, because it's a great example of an unusual but godly commitment in the Bible. Okay? Paul is called to go from these successful missionary journeys where all these people are coming to know Jesus. and God calls him to go to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, God has told him, you're going to suffer and you're going to be imprisoned. So you've been sharing God's word. All these people have been coming to know Jesus. But now you're going to imprisonment and suffering. It doesn't really make a lot of sense. It's unusual. But he was constrained by the spirit, God's word says in Acts 20. And we know Paul is definitely a man of the word. So it's both for Paul. And I just want to say this, exercising one without the other is evidence of pride in our life. The word without the spirit assumes that your intellect or your common sense is enough to know that not only know all of God's word, but be able to apply it to all aspects of life. It's pride. It's saying, man, I, I, I got this, and I know it, it's fine, I'll just do what it says, and I'm a pretty smart person, I can do that. The people here in Joshua 9 get God's word right, but they don't stop to say, Lord, are we applying this the right way? Are we asking the right question? What do you want? Equally, the spirit without the word assumes you have some special, nearly infallible relational pipeline to God. It's saying, you know what? I know God's word. It's good to know the essentials, but really it's me and God, and we got our own thing going. And so all of us who have, who hear who have trusted our lives to Jesus and have walked with Him for some time tend towards one or the other. You tend to be more of a spirit person or a word person. I want to share this list that uh, one of my favorite people, Dr. Sam Storm, was once uh, imparted to me. I was up in Chicago, and I want to ask you to identify where you fall on this list. All right? Are you more of a word person or more of a spirit person? Okay? Just think through this with me, if you would. If you're more of a word person, you like the centrality of God speaking or sorry, centrality of speaking God's word on Sunday. If you're more of a spirit person, the centrality of seeing God's word on a Sunday. That's big for you. Obviously these are generalities, but go with me on this. If you're a word person, you want your mind fed. If you're a spirit person, you want your affections fed. If you're a word person, you insist on biblical precedent. Hey man, where is this in the Bible? What you're doing, where is this in the Bible? If you're a spirit person, you're all about biblical prohibition. Where is this prohibited in the Bible? If you're a word person, you prefer biblically informed wisdom. If you're a spirit person, you make choices based on spiritually imparted discernment. A word person tends to embrace suffering. understand that God has purpose in it. A spiritual person, spirit person, tends to expect healing. A word person's struggle is with the flesh, pardon me, and the sin nature. The spirit person's struggle is with Satan and demons. The word person finds joy in the mundane. The spirit person finds joy in the miraculous. The word person's favorite parts of the Bible are the New Testament, and specifically the epistles and letters. The spirit person prefers the Old Testament and the Gospels, because lots of powerful things with miracles happen there. The word person enjoys worship songs about God, right? They're God-centered. It says, you are holy, right? You are mighty. Whereas the spirit per- person prefers songs to God. I will sing to you. I will worship. I will love you. The word person bonds with other people through beliefs and ideas. That excites them when they meet someone who has the same ideas and beliefs as them. The spirit person bonds through shared experience. So I want you to think, where do you fall on this? As I look at this honestly, I tend more towards the Word camp, which is kind of ironic because I'm very much wired with like, passion and affections, and that's important to me. And I'm grateful because I've also found that God won't let me go very long without listening and being attentive to the Spirit's leading. He always tends to check me on that. But that's important to know where you stand. I would say to the Word person, my encouragement to you is to make quiet and time. If you tend to be kind of just rational and use your common sense reading God's Word, okay, I know what to do, I know what it says, I'm going to do it, that's me. Make quiet and time. Keep reading God's Word, but make sure you go for a walk instead of under a tree. Leave behind your cell, your laptop, your tablet. You're all about efficiency. You want to get other things done. Discipline yourself to make windows of quiet for you to hear the Holy Spirit speak in your life. You don't have to get super emotional or wrap yourself up in a yoga position, right, and mmm your way into God's Spirit. That's not how it works. You just be like the young Samuel in the Old Testament. Simply pray, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And I found God is very faithful to speak. Ask him to personalize God's Word, which you just read. To the spirit person, let me encourage you, make a determined and disciplined reading plan. Because you need both in your life. You can't just rely on your pipeline. Get yourself in front of God's written word. Listen to good sermons. Take notes on Sunday and review them during the week. Discipline yourself to do that. Because otherwise you might might tend to just rely on your own thoughts and your own mind how God speaks to you, which might just be you. During worship this morning, sit down instead of singing Sit down and plan what you'll read from now until December in God's Word. That's how you'll stop relying on your own pipeline to God. Because it's not as reliable as you think. And as you read, ask for the Holy Spirit to help you discern themes in God's Word that He wants to work into your life. Because without both elements, Word and Spirit... In ways God speaks to us now, it's easy to mistake a good-looking commitment for a godly one. You've got to have both. Okay, that's my longest thing here. Principle two. Principle two in making a godly versus a good commitment is to make elastic commitments. Make elastic commitments. Stretching, but realistic. Commitments that God is usually behind typically stretch us, but not from a size 46 ways to a size 30. All right, realistic stretching. Sometimes I think we make those kinds of commitments. Generation Next had little business making this level of commitment. They stretched themselves too far. One, because they hardly knew these people. Let me briefly describe what a covenant would have involved with these people. Sumptuous feasts for days. That sounds nice, right? You handle that. But also the, the party in power. And the weaker party, in this case the Gibeonites, would each pass between the halves of animals in making a covenant, as if to say to each other and before each set of gods, their gods, the Gibeonites and Yahweh, may the same fate come to me should I fail to keep this covenant. Right? I.E. get split in half with a knife. (laughs) Alright, so very serious. That's where the term cut a covenant comes from. So it's a very serious, ritualistic covenant complete kind of ceremony going on here. It was a serious thing. And also, because the wider counsel of God's word rails against these covenants with gods, with with people who don't worship the same gods. All right, so Israel and covenants with other nations never goes well in Scripture. It just goes poorly. They're out of their league here. They could have easily said, hey, look, here's what we're going to do. We'll let you stick around. For a year, if everything checks out, right? We do a background check, see where you live, find out where you come from, do some interviews. We'll let you stick around. That would have been a real a stretching but realistic commitment. Instead, now we're just going to let you live forever and all your generations. Even though God's told us something else, we're going to take the risk. We ought to be similarly wise, though, about our commitments. To, commitments to stretch our faith, but not foolishly. And I have to confess that I often fail here. I, I failed here as a pastor, actually. I, I, I used to, in years gone by, previous local church situations, I used to ask each volunteer for a one-year commitment. Usually they're based around a school year, because a one-year commitment's realistic, especially for a new volunteer who wants to serve and wants to help. But I really haven't done that very well since I've been here. Uh, so here and now, I want to ask the heads of our ministry... They're in charge of their own ministry and asking for their own commitments. But our heads of ministry for a one-year commitment, one school year, starting today. I'll assume that silence means you agree to that. Great. <laughs> because that, but, but seriously, that gives, that gives people serving realistic time to identify Whether it's a good gifts match, whether their gifts match up with the service, and whether they're producing fruit in that ministry, it might be a bad match. But if they feel stuck, it's unrealistic. It's a poor commitment, and they'll end up getting embittered. So make elastic commitments. Stretch you, but also realistic. Principle three is a question. Will the commitment cause me to drift from God's people? A better way to put this would be, Will the commitment cause me to decommit from God's people? I like that better. After the leaders of Generation Next wrongly make this commitment to the Gibeonites, what happens? The masses murmur against them, right? In verse 18, they're under some heavy criticism. They're hearing the grumbling. If you've ever been in that situation, you know that what the temptation when you start to hear grumbling. If you're in a leadership position, it's easy to withdraw. You withdraw a little bit from the people from the proletariats and you become insular but look what they do instead God's people so God's leaders handle it rightly verse 19 and 20 all the leaders said to all the congregation we have sworn to them by the Lord the God of Israel we we can't touch them so here's what we're going to do then we're going to have a plan we've made one here's what this plan is they stay in the people's presence and they own up to their mistake isn't that cool and we don't think about how tempting it would have been to be like, oh, right, let's just hang out in our tents, let this thing blow over," but create a little bit of distance between us and the people. Going back to the Apostle Paul situation, I referred to that earlier. He had to go down to Jerusalem, where he's going to have suffering, and jail time. Virtually every person around Paul tells him not to go to Jerusalem. They say, "Don't go down there, Paul." Foolish. Even or even we even have people in verse, uh, sorry, chapter twenty-one of Acts. We have people who say, through the Spirit, tell him not to go. And I've looked at this passage closely, and I, I take it to be the equivalent of people saying, hey, bro, uh, I think God's telling me that you shouldn't go down there. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever had that situation happen. Where someone's like, no, I think, uh, I really sense God is telling you not to move or not to leave my community group. I don't know if you've ever had that happen. But people are telling Paul this. They're, using, they're bringing out the Spirit told me card even though not one of the churches or individuals is on record as encouraging Paul and his spirit-assigned commitment, he doesn't say, you know what? Forget you. Forget her too, right? And he doesn't find a cave to hide in until his ship comes. He sticks around God's people, continues to fellowship with them, even though nobody seems to agree with him. What about you? If God's people... If those in the church challenged you, even criticized you for an express commitment that you made, I think I'm thinking about doing this. Would you get mad? Would you become embittered? Would you say, man, forget you and walk away? Would that be your response? If you said, hey, look, I think I need to separate from my spouse. Or if you say, you know, I think I'm ready to get married. or You say, you know, hey, I I think I'm going to leave my job and start a new business or leave my job or not work at all. I'm going to leave my job, move overseas. Or I'm going to decommit from church a little bit to commit myself to this. And someone disagreed with you. Someone challenged you. Would you distance yourself a little? If your answer, honestly, is yes or maybe, I would certainly question if this is a godly commitment you're about to make. Certainly question it. If in your heart you say, you know what? People don't agree with me. I feel like people aren't going to agree with me. So I'm just going to say, forget it. I'm telling you, you're on the road to a poor commitment. Because if it's from God, it won't matter if you're still fellowshipping with other people. They can't stop if it is from God. How to respond when you make poor promises. We're going to go through this quickly. How to respond when you make poor promises or unprayed commitments. Look with me at verses 19 through 21 real quick. All the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. We may not touch them. Here's what we're going to do to them. Let them live, lest God's wrath be upon us, because of the oath that we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water for all the congregation. God's people follow through with a poor promise and an unprayed commitment. And when they do this, that commitment's immediately challenged by the kings of Canaan who who challenge, who pick a fight with the Gibeonites. In chapter 10, and the Gibeonites call on Israel and say, Hey, look, we made this covenant. Come help us. We need your help. We need your aid. And so they do follow through. And God blesses them following through, even though it's a poor commitment, an unprayed for commitment. Uh, You're going to see that he promises to protect them We're going to see actually later in uh, chapter 10 that uh, he throws these armies into panic. He sends natural disaster upon these foreign armies. He answers Joshua's prayer to make the sun stand still. Like for a whole day, the moon just doesn't come up. God does this miracle so that God's people can finish fighting. He blesses them for following through. When you do make a poor promise or unpaid, unprayed for commitment, I believe the wise counsel would be confess to a prospective employer, confess to your spouse, to your kids, to your ministry leader, to your pastor, confess your mistake, and simultaneously affirm your commitment. Right, even mention good reasons why you committed in the first place and comment that, hey, I'll still do it well. And that way, they make the decision to release you, but not out of manipulation. So, you know, I'll stick with this commitment you want me to, and I'll gladly do it. And if they release you, great. But if they don't, or maybe they feel like they can't, trust God. will certainly bless your following through with it. Don't just withdraw and say, I just won't show up. or I'll just quit. Number three, how can God redeem poor promises and unprayed commitments? One of the great things about this passage, which is just so cool, it's just this little hint. The author of Joshua purposely leaves this little glimmer of redemption at the end of this chapter, right? Read read with this. Read this in verses 26 and 27. So Joshua did this to them. He delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. They did not kill them, but Joshua made them that day cutters of wood, drawers of water for the congregation, for the altar of the Lord to this day. In other words, the day this is being written, uh, a couple centuries later, in the place that he should choose. Joshua assigns them to take care of And prepare the wood and water necessary to make sacrifices in God's temple. Which hasn't even come yet, by the way. Thus, they go from, think about this, uncared for, a hopeless pagan nation destined for destruction. To daily working near the presence of God every day. The palpable presence of God each day of their lives. That's their job into any commitment, a Christian brings with him or her the presence of Jesus. And thus, brings those around him or her into the presence of Jesus. The Bible calls Christians Christ's ambassadors. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20. All this is from God, who through Jesus reconciled us to himself. And now he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Jesus... God was recognizing the world to himself, not counting their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Over the last couple months, I received notes from two different men who are part of Sunrise Community Church but have since moved off island. And in both of these notes, um, they both expressed to me that they feel they may have been too hasty in making a commitment to move off island, to move elsewhere. And I appreciate it because I know it was very vulnerable for them to say this. And They said, you know, this was a commitment that, that looked good, but not wasn't necessarily what God wanted. One of the men even referred to a, a couple sermons I preached back in January on, on God's calling from 1 Corinthians 7 when I mentioned that and when God's word says that when it comes to calling, God's default is to remain. Like his default isn't moving. It's to remain where you are and live for him where you remain. So as he mentions, man, I, you know, I, I wonder if I made a mistake. I wonder if this was a commitment that looked good but wasn't from God. What do you say? Like, what would you say in that situation? Because I knew one of these guys well, in particular, I wanted to encourage him, but I also didn't want to provide some empty platitude like, oh, God loves you, takes care of you, where you're supposed to be, that sort of thing. Instead, I offered for 2 Corinthians 5. And I just said, you know what? You can still be an ambassador in the wrong country. You can still be an ambassador in the wrong country. Some of you here feel stuck in an unprayed commitment or poor promise this morning perhaps it's an extra year contract and a job that makes you miserable Uh, maybe it's a volunteer assignment in which you feel underutilized and underappreciated or even a commitment in a marriage which in an honest moment you recognize now as a hasty commitment jesus can bring redemption all around you because you can be an ambassador in the wrong country let's pray Father, I know for many of my friends here this morning, I feel like they have made hasty commitments, feel like they've overcommitted. And so I pray, Father, first that in the future, you would help us make not commitments that simply look good, but godly commitments. Father, help us be people who are both attentive to what you have to say through your word and by your spirit. Help us think about commitments in terms of being uh, elastic commitments, not stretching but not totally unrealistic. Father, finally, commitments that don't make us decommit from God's people, that if someone was to challenge us in our commitment, that wouldn't cause us to withdraw from fellowship. Father, I pray for those who are stuck in that kind of commitment. Father, help us see the glimmer of hope there, the redemption that can take place. Like for the Gibeonites who were subtly told we're gonna have a job in God's presence and have a career ministering before the Lord in the same way, God, we can bring Jesus into the wrong country, to the wrong place. And that seems very right. We ask this in his name, amen.